and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jiggins! Steyerwalt. I'm the Deputy Regional Goldberg, uh, and this is the Remnant Podcast brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Yes, uh, my vocal twin, Jonah Goldberg, is taking a well-deserved break this week, and I, Chris Steyerwalt, uh, contributing editor at the Dispatch, uh, I do other stuff, uh, AEI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but it is my privilege to be here with you. And when Jonah asked me if I would do it, the very first thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, polling because I'm a huge nerd. Uh, it is true that I am a huge nerd. And this week, uh, the Association of American Public Research something, something, uh, uh, released their uh, sharply self-critical report uh, on the polling industry's misses uh, in the 2020 election and that they were the, the, the widest miss since 1980 and the piling on continued. Um, so is forecasting terminally screwed up? Uh, uh, does public opinion research work in politics anymore? What are we going to do about this stuff? And also which diet cola is the best? There's only one person who can answer all of those questions, uh, and do so with, uh, a gratifying self-deprecating wit, uh, and great insight is my good friend, Harry Enton. Uh, Harry is, uh, um, tell me your title at CNN. It's whatever the hell you want it to be, Chris. <laughs> that that's okay. We're off on the right foot. We're off and running in the right direction. But what do they say? What 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 do you what is your title? I think now the title is senior data reporter, uh, which it used to be senior political writer and analyst. But what had happened was over the last half of a year, I have expanded out, and I don't just cover politics anymore. I would say that at least fifty percent of my uh, television appearances are on stuff such as uh, COVID statistics. And earlier this morning, uh, I discussed uh, statistics surrounding, surrounding uh, the space flight that occurred when Jeff Bezos decided to jump on whatever it is. I guess it's a rocket in the space. Well, uh, we can talk another time about what it says about Jeff Bezos, that the rocket ship he built uh, looks more like a phallus than anything I've ever seen. That's a separate that's a separate discussion. I don't know what I don't know what is what is wrong with Mr. Bezos, but I hope I hope he gets it checked out. Um, But so you are basically idling in a car out front of Steve Kornacki's house like I'm coming for you is what you're saying. You are you are doing the Kornacki and you are you're going to transcend the 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 rough rude politics where I live and go into the stuff that people actually like. I you know I, the joke I always would make is Steve Kornacki is who I want to be when I grow up. No, I look, Steve and I have <laughs> known each other for uh, years. Uh, I remember when I was uh in college and Steve was at Salon and we met back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that jazz. And I, I, I love Steve. I, I, I love him too. You I love both of you guys. Uh, and people are at your respective networks are very lucky to have you. And one of the reasons they're very lucky to have you at CNN, viewers at CNN are lucky to have you is because you were at 538 before. That's where I got to know you. But as a forecaster, you're really dispassionate, right? You're, you are I, I honestly don't know how you vote. I don't know if you vote. I don't know anything about your politics. I just know that your grasp on data and all that stuff is most impressive. So is 
it correct to say I, uh, the Bloomberg piece on the 2020 polls uh, described them as wildly inaccurate. Uh, and the, the m- many of these statements uh, hold up, many of these criticisms of the polls hold up. If you look at the state polls, Wisconsin, I don't know what's, why Wisconsin cannot be polled. We need to, we need, is it the cheese? I don't know. But Wisconsin had, the, again, the highest error rate uh, of any state poll. And there's big, big problems in the state polls. But I went through and I looked at the numbers. Um, and yeah, uh, they missed Trump uh, the, on an average of the of good polls, high quality polls at the end. They missed Trump. They understated Trump by 3.9 points. But that's just the same. That's the same understatement that they had in uh, 2016 on Trump. So how bad is it? And are you worried? So I think that there are two things that I'll note is one. Um, am I worried? Obviously, I'm not thrilled with the performance, but the fact of the matter is, I think we got uh, very much spoiled over the last few cycles before 2016 with the highly, uh, the highly accurate state polls. Uh, I tend to take a more you know, longitudinal view of this type of stuff. I look back over time, and that is part of the reason why perhaps I wasn't as surprised as some other folks were. Uh, obviously, the, usually the average is the best way to go because we don't know which way the error will necessarily swing. But look, we had ma- massive polling misses in 1980, for example, right? I think that people misremember um, how exactly, you know, that election sort of spun out. There was this idea, essentially, yes, we saw that Reagan was gaining in the national polls in 1980 right at the very end, but it really wasn't reflective in the state polling. And Reagan basically ran ran the table and did very, very well. Before the 1970s, we don't have a lot of state polling, but we know that the national polling was not particularly good in 36, 40, 44, 48, mm-hmm. 52. And so I think we get sort of sucked into this current time without recognizing, hey, as politics is changing, as things are becoming more polarized, as fewer people are answering phone polls, all of these things kind of come together. And I would essentially say, look, polls are instruments. They are not fortune tellers. They are not meant to be so precise. And if we instead look at polls and look at a race in which it's 51-49, instead of saying, oh, the candidate who's at 51% has a really, you know, is really, really the strong favorite and say, look, more times than not, the candidate 51% will win than lose. But in reality, at most, it's really a tilt towards that candidate. I think mm-hmm. we'd be, we would be far better off. Uh, my my favorite on this front is 2012, uh, <clears throat> which polling continued to intensify the amount of polling that was being done, the, the reliance on polls, the fixation on polling uh, only increased after that. But in 2012, uh, if if the if the miss was about four points. Uh, on margin uh, in 2020. In 2012, it was 3.3 points. The polls forecast in 2012 a very. I'm I am looking at my chicken scratch right now. Uh, the poll uh, average of good polls, and this included uh, Politico, IBD, and that's the Politico GW Battleground poll, which is a which it's now at uh, George Washington or uh, Georgetown, but the, that poll IBD, CNN, Gallup, and ABC, and average those are the the five final good polls in 2012. Um, and when I say a good poll, what I mean is 
a poll that was conducted by live interviewers so that they can call the cell phones and landlines and uh, that uh, is nonpartisan, that is not done by a partisan organization, has a good sample size and is in the field for the right number of dates. So the polls that meet the criteria came up with a race that said Romney was only trailing Obama by six tenths of a point. And that's not what happened, right? Uh, in fact, Romney underperformed and Obama overperformed by 2.1 points. And that was a that was not as bad of a miss as 2020, but close. Um, I have a theory, which is that political journalists, my joke about guys like you and me is that we're the, we're the weatherman. We're like, well, here's a front that's moving in this way, and here are these clouds. We think it may rain, but it's a 67% chance that it will rain. The real political reporting that's done uh, is shoe leather, and you have to go talk to people, and you have to go places and do things. I have a belief that news outlets, reporters, editors, anchors, everybody is too reliant on polling. And I say this as a person who really loves polling, but they're so reliant on it and they use it so much too much that it's inevitable that it, when, it, when there are errors or there are mistakes, they will be judged excessively harshly. Am I just being defensive of my friend's polls? Um, I would say that essentially the reason why people are judged harshly is in part because, one, people are continu continuously showered with numbers. So they yes. take on almost a mythic status. Um, and two, I would say that it's incumbent upon us to um, sort of spell the gospel out that these are instruments, that they're not perfect. You know, you mentioned 2012. That for a long time, I remember after the 2016 election, I did some, um, you know, class that I was speaking to. I think it was at Chicago. It might have been Harvard. When they're all elitist, you can really tell the difference. Oh, nice. Humble brag. I don't know. Was uh, it the University of Chicago? Was it Harvard? Who can tell anymore? Who, who can tell anymore? They're all the same. <laughs> uh, and essentially, what I recall was that the trip, you know, the, the trivia question was, in which era was the national polls worse, 2012 or 2016? And the answer was 2012, um, that the national polls were worse in 2012 than 2016. It just so happens that when the error benefits the side that is trailing, that mm -hmm. I think that essentially people are like, whoa, this election was much closer than we thought it was. Yes. And so that people sort of get this sort of belief, right? If Joe Biden had won the state of Wisconsin by 12 instead of one or, you know, or whatever it was, and the yeah, race yeah. was more of a blowout, no one would have cared. I right. will say that it is something to point out that, um, the error being twice in a row in two presidential elections, underestimating the Republican candidate. I think that is more worrisome. The bias is more worrisome to people than the size of the error. And if the error, if the bias, if the error had been the same as the last one, but the bias was in a different direction, I think people would be far less concerned. Right. My old, my old uh, line on polls uh, used to be, I think it, I think it will be again. Uh, the polls are always wrong. Uh, by but not by much, and we don't know in which direction. Uh, if it's if they if they are, and and this was true for some polls before. So Republicans were traditionally understated in generic ballot polls. There was a phenomenon, and it, some of it had to do with House districts 
and the Republican lean in states like Wyoming and Montana, now Montana will have two, but of, of those, of those big empty red states, um, that was part of the bias. But the other part is that Republicans have always been harder to poll than Democrats. Is that true? Is that right? I would say this. First off, you're remembering on the generic ballot is 100% correct. That used to always be the case. Um, you know, certainly it's been the case. I mean, I'd, I don't know if we're going to get into the report or not. It has been the case certainly in the last few presidential cycles that the Republicans who are answering the polls are not representative of the Republicans at large. So t- tell us a little bit about let's let's and I, I know, you know, these things, but let's just walk folks uh, through the what they believe is the necromancy, the cracked chicken bones of polling. The how how do you make it so that you can have a group of a thousand people that are that are indicative of the entire country uh, or a group of 600 people that are indicative of the, the state of Minnesota? How, how do you do that? How does one do that? It's the same. I mean, the way that I would just sort of sum it up, it's the same way if you were to take a blood test uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, it is long and you take that blood test and you go, wow, that that that, you know, vial of blood is and I hate getting blood tests. Needles freak me out. Um, <laughs> you know, getting the covid vaccine, you know, that's how you knew I, I, I was getting that no matter what. I hate needles. And I was literally laying on the floor at the Walgreens, uh, you know, because I, I get I'm these sure reactions. I'm sure everyone was just delighted to say that there is a, there is a gentleman laying here uh, next to the uh, Foster Grand sunglasses and a Terry Ann. That's right. It wasn't that the vaccine did anything. The vaccine was great. I had minimal reactions. It was just, I see a needle like, ah! Um, <laughs> so, you know, you take that sample <laughs> and it's represented because it's random, right? And this is what we're doing when it comes to polling, right? It, we essentially take a random sample of the population. 600 people, 1,000 people, you know, I've seen polls, 400 people. Uh, As you go up, the chance that this is representative of the entire population goes up as well. And that's why your margin of error shrinks with the higher sample size that you get. But the key with all of this is that it is a random sample, that it is representative of the population, that each person within the poll has as good of a chance of getting selected as anybody else, and that these people, as I was hinting at, are representative of the larger electorate. Go ahead. Chris. But 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 random. <clears throat> I think one of the things that, and this is a, a thing we hear from Republicans a lot, uh, that random and representative uh, are have slightly different meanings here. So yes, the sample has to be random that it is a auto-generated phone number that it could be anybody, right? Anybody, right. Every, every, every person with a telephone in the United States needs to have the same chance of getting called. But the sample has to look like the country. So how do you make it so that the sample looks like the country? So it's good that it's random, but now how do you make sure that you didn't just accidentally, because random uh, with random number generators, you could end up with a third of the people be from Oxnard, California by accident, and that wouldn't be representative. So how do you make it representative? Sure. Um, well, the, I love the idea that you pulled Oxnard, uh, California out of there. Um, what it essentially it is, is afterwards, which what a pollster will do is ensure that each portion of the population, demographically, gender, um, race, 
Uh, education now, specifically so as we've hit highs in education polarization, a region, um, some pollsters do, you know, urban versus rural, essentially that each part of the population m- as close as possible matches up what we know are the known parameters to each part of the population. So if let's say we're low on black men below the age of 30, we'll wait up within the sample, the black men under 30 that we have. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so we will do that across. Now, here's the tricky part and what I think we haven't quite hit on yet, which is that we can do that across things. But let's say for whatever reason, regardless of all of those demographics, that Republicans are less likely to answer the telephone poll or the poll than Democrats, okay? Mm -hmm. How do we deal with that? Well, different pollsters will have different beliefs on how to do that, some of whom will weight up the percentage of Republicans because for whatever their known benchmark, and getting a known benchmark isn't as easy as it sounds for something like that because take the state of Wisconsin, for example. There Mm -hmm. is no known vote. There is no party registration. There's no party registration. One one of the things that, I get frustrated with in the conversation around polling is, and this is, you can see this uh, on partisanship. You'll go through one election cycle and the partisanship of the nation will shift over the course of one election cycle. That at the beginning, people may be feeling very good about the Democratic Party and identify themselves strongly with the Democratic Party, but then the Democratic candidate will do something stupid and they'll say, I think Americans... One of the frustrating things about covering politics in this very, very politically addicted age is there are, I don't know what it is, but let's say that it's there's 60% of the country or uh, uh, two-thirds of the country that are heavily politically engaged, right? Their, their social media feeds, their news intake hi uh they're uh, everything that they're doing is steeped in politics and partisanship it's hard for them to understand the people who most look at politics and most look at polling would tend to assume that other people are like them what they don't know is that there's another third of the country that doesn't care they don't they're not interested they're not participating maybe it's more than a third and they don't care and when they do engage so these are the these are the voters everybody's looking for, right? These are the persuadable voters, and it shouldn't be surprising, but it always is surprising to us that the persuadable voters are the least engaged and least ideological. They're floaty, so they can be they can think of themselves as maybe a little Democrat. They can think so some as little Republican. We focus so much on the polarization, we forget about these real, actual, persuadable. And it's not that they're low information voters necessarily. They may be, but they're low interest voters. Is that right? I, it, well, I'll say this. Um, you know, it depends. There are two things that I'll point out. One, or maybe three things I'll point out. One, you're 100% correct. Party affiliation and party identification are two very different things. That is the way that you would answer a phone call and say, are, do you feel more like a Democrat or Republican? That's a feeling. That can change. For most people, it doesn't. But for some people, it absolutely does. Uh, now you're drinking a terrific. What? What? What is? Is that a seltzer or a soda? So it's a it's a, a Wegman's. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you, 
and I, I don't, I don't want to give away. I, I think people should stay for the end for the actual soda talk, but I got to tell you, Wegmans pineapple sparkling water is Nirvana. It is. I, I, I know that you're more of an actual soda person, but this stuff is amazing. I'm, I'm glad as long as you're staying hydrated, that's what's most important. That's the most important thing is to stay hydrated. Okay. So you were, you were, you were, so you, your point number one, which I really liked was that I was right. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, partisan, that, that, uh, political identification, uh, uh, people are, are often transitioning. Uh, and, but what were you going to say about the, re- how I was wrong? What is the part uh, what, uh, where I was what, wrong? What, what I, I was going to say was, uh, depending on how we exactly measure it, right? Uh, in terms of the voting eligible population, we had turnout this time around that was two thirds. So there's one third of people who don't even, even in a very high turnout election, decided not even to cast a ballot. Um, the other thing that I'll note is within a given cycle, right? Look, there are Democrats, there are Republicans, there are independents. A lot of the independents lean towards one party or the other. There are a slew of independents, um, let's say 10% of the entire uh, group of voters who don't lean towards one side or the other. And what's so important to recognize about them is, you know, we, I think that oftentimes there's this stereotype, oh, the, you know, the independent voters are moderate voters and yeah, they yeah, have yeah. this sort of belief. In fact, independent voters may not be that. They may have the the most stark right views on some issues and then they kind of mix it with these stark left views on another mm-hmm. And it kind of, and it just becomes very, very tricky. So it, it's just a very bizarre thing. But just in terms of the understanding of the baseline of what we're waiting towards when it comes to this can be very, very difficult. And then even if we get the right percentage of Republicans in the poll, let's say by party identification, we just get it right, the correct percentage of Democrats and the correct percentage of independents, it doesn't mean that the people who call themselves Republicans that we get on the phone, mm-hmm. that they are necessarily representative of the Republican base at large. Okay. So the, in the, in the, in the, uh, though you sound like an 85 year old man, the truth is you are substantially younger than me. And the, in the, in the before times in the, in Jan olden days, uh, of the 1990s, when I was starting out as, as a reporter, we knew then that Republicans were harder to poll. It was already like, it was a, it was a assumption. Now, um, my good friend, Darren Shaw, uh, with whom I worked on the Fox News Decision Desk, who is a uh, poli-sci professor at the University of Texas, uh, has done a lot of work, and I find it persuasive uh, that the polling error, or, or that the, their, their work uh, centers on turnout, his work most recently centered on turnout, but he made a persuasive argument that the a democratic bias in polls traditionally was very small if it was there at all. So I say, okay, fine. But our old assumption was that Republicans were harder to poll than Democrats. Now we had uh, old wives tales about why that was so. We said, well, it's because the Republicans see uh, they work, they're, they're, they're more family oriented or they live in the suburbs. So they're harder to get a hold of because they're not home. Uh, what time, it's sort of like the stuff you talk about when do Republicans vote during when, when the votes are coming in on election day? Well, you figure Republicans are going to vote at this time and Democrats will vote like that. Most of that stuff was poppycock. But let me try to save a kernel of the poppycock, which is, is it possible 
that working class Americans are harder to poll than more affluent Americans and that people just period, right? Whether that's, whether it, it, I think much like we see with vaccines, uh, poor whites uh, and poor people of color, rural and urban have a lot of the same, there are a lot of character, there are a lot of demographic traits uh, across those spectrum. Uh, is it possible maybe that as the Republican Party gets more working class uh, and there are more, certainly in 2016 and 2020, more self-identified Republicans who were would not have been self-identified Republicans before, is that maybe making it worse? Tell me why I'm crazy. I don't know if you're necessarily crazy. I mean, we know that polls have traditionally, for instance, um, it's harder to poll uh, people of color. We know it's harder to poll younger folks. We know that oftentimes polls can have um, too high a represent- representation of college-educated folks. Um, and we have to weight those down for sure. The question, though, is whether or not the traditional ways we have of weighting those back in are adequate, mm-hmm. right? That, I think, is the big question. And I'm not necessarily sure, at least at this point, that they are. I will say, you know, broadly speaking, right, if we look at what are the big trend lines from this past election, one of the big trend lines was that John, Donald Trump did significantly better among Hispanics than he did in 2016, right? Uh, Hispanics are mm-hmm. not an easy group to poll compared to other folks, yet, mm-hmm the polls actually got a pretty good understanding that he was going to do better with Hispanics than not. It was part of the reason why the polling in the state of Texas actually was not half bad. It's yeah. part of the, it's part of the reason why the polling in Nevada was not half that was not that half bad. Um, and so, you know, we got that type of thing, even though Hispanics are harder to poll, supposedly, at least, you know, traditionally happened. Traditionally. Yep. 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 Uh, so, I don't, it's certainly possible, the thesis that you point out there, but the question is whether or not the traditional ways we have of weighting groups back into alignment can certainly shift some things around. Right now, I'm not sure that they're necessarily falling short on Hispanics uh, or African Americans, um, at least in a general election sort of uh, area, but for whatever reason, uh, the working class, and when I say working class, I mean those lacking a college degree, um, it was certainly the case that in the states in which there were more white voters without a college degree, that the errors were higher. You know, uh, you have a 304 area code on your cell. Uh, right. You understand the state of uh, West Virginia. Um, and, you know, we know that the polling error in the state of West Virginia was very high. Once again, no one ever talks about that because West Virginia is not competitive in a general election. But who cares, right? Who cares? But that I think is indicative of the larger errors that we were seeing, which was, again, they tended to be more in the states in which white voters without a college degree made up a large percentage of the vote. Okay. If we think about two problems, we got the Republican problem, and then we have the uh, geographically limited 
uh, problem. So state polls are hard for the reasons you described, for all that we're talking about. Well, guess what we're going to have to do a lot of between now and November of 2022? Going to have to do a lot of state polls. And the, I would say, a lot of the last round of midterm polling was pretty good, but there were some pretty preposterous mistakes uh, in midterm polling for 2018. What are we thinking about as you as you look over, just over the horizon? 2022 real polling is going to start, and we already know that it's got to start uh, on its weakest footing. So, what do you think? I think a few things. One, you know, 2018 overall the polling was significantly better. However, it was not. If you think of where the polling misses were greatest, they were greatest in places like Missouri and yep. Indiana. Um, and I do consider uh, Missouri is on the border, but I consider both of those to be Midwestern states. Um, yeah, of course, Missouri is a Midwestern state. What do you think it is? Some people might consider it a Southern state. Well, you're from New York. You think Maryland is a Southern state. You just assume everything that, ba- that basically once you get past the, uh, Jersey turnpike, every, that the rest of that is basically the Mason Dixon line. Yeah. Basically the rest of that is Texas in your mind. I know. So regardless of my own <laughs> proclivities. Uh, so I think you start off there. But the other thing that I will point out is that I think we've already seen in the state of Virginia this time around, the governor's race is in 2021, in November, very few statewide polls, very few yep. statewide polls. Uh, if you compare it to four years ago. Now, part of that is because I think interest in politics is generally down with Joe Biden in the White House instead of Donald Trump. But I think part of that as well is a lack of interest in state polling after um, 2020. Well, another problem we have, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, and you know, I talked about when I was at Fox about a need for, we, there, there's a problem. As the media landscape has changed, so we used to be able to rely on, as we're looking at midterms or the Electoral College, there's going to be a ton of state polling, right? The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's going to do a poll, and so will the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and so will KDKA. And so, boom, I got three polls out of, I got three polls out of Pennsylvania. Wonderful. And that you could count on these news organizations, because doing a poll, a good poll, and this maybe is, uh, maybe this is uh, the, it's self-diagnosed, uh, a good poll is expensive to do. Media, local media organizations are broke and uh, looking for every way to cut money. So they've cut a lot of their polling just because it's expensive to do a poll. Rushing in to replace these polls, these good polls, are very bad polls. And another part of the problem that we have is whether it's a survey monkey or, and people have different feelings about YouGov. I have my feelings about YouGov. But the the flood of cheapo polling and some of it's online polling and a lot of it is robocall polling, uh, like, um, Rasmussen. Uh, I forget whether does data for progress do robo polls. The, by the way, folks, the, the problem with robo polls is they can't call cell phones. It's illegal for them to call cell phones. Uh, the FCC says that you cannot have a robot call somebody's cell phone. So you have to have a live interviewer do the, do the call. Um, so into a shrinking space of good polls comes a lot of cheap polling. Is that true? Oh, sure. I mean, what we know, first off, I think there are a few things. One, 
live interview polls are making up a lower percentage of the overall polling uh, universe than ever before. That's uh, not surprising. Uh, two, I will point out that in 2020, there weren't any error differences between the array of different polls that you sort of laid out there. There wasn't an error difference between robo, between internet polling, between live interview. I still like live interview insofar as I feel for uh, demographic representation um, mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, how um, Hispanics vote or younger folks or whatever. The other polls, you know, there's a lot of them have to rely on a lot more weighting and a lot more assumptions. And that doesn't necessarily hurt the top line. That is, you know, the horse race number, but it does, in my opinion, at least in my experience, it can hurt understanding of different demographic groups, which is something that I'm very interested in. Um, But yeah. And and let me interrupt just for one second. Yes, go ahead. It is your podcast after all. It's not even my podcast. I'm just borrowing this podcast. You're you're the host. You're not, you're not the star. Go on. Uh, There you go. There you go. The, um, you and I like polls more. And I, I'm making an assumption about you, but you're a fundamentally decent person. You and I like polls for what they tell us about the voters, not more for what they tell us about the voters than they tell us about the condition of the race. Right. If you, uh, as I say to people, uh, if you love America, then you got to love Americans. And the good way to love Americans is to find out what they're up to, what they're doing, how they're feeling, what's, what, what, is, what are these uh, 330 million human beings up to and, and what are they about? Is, do you, I, I think when you said it affects the horse race, it, it doesn't affect the horse race number, but it affects what's underneath. I, I care more about what's underneath than I do about the horse race number until we get to the very end, right? At the very end, yes. What do we want? We want, you know, get, when, when you get me past Labor Day, what do I want? Just give me the horse race because that's, that, that's what we're talking about. But most of the time, I'm just interested in what's underneath. And I, I will note, it's also after the election, we care of what's underneath, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's in, in non-politics, it's what we care is underneath, right? You know, I mentioned uh, earlier on that, you know, I'm covering a lot of stuff with regards to COVID. And what we care about isn't just the absolute levels of what percentage X, what percentage Y. What we're interested in is is what percentage of Republicans have received at least one dose of the vaccine? What percentage of Democrats have received at least one dose? Uh, How does the group of people who are vaccine hesitant, that is those who are, I see, I see, I haven't gotten the vaccine, but I'm not really quite sure on it versus the vaccine resistant group. I'm definitely not freaking getting that vaccine. Uh, How those groups differ. Uh, it's very important to understand the uh, cross-tab analysis, to understand the different group analysis. Let's let's chase that rabbit. Uh, I have a belief that much of the red-blue overlay to the vaccine map, so if we take the vaccine map, we pop it up, looks an awful lot like the presidential map. If it, uh, The Trump states are the least vaccinated, the Biden states are the most vaccinated. But I would note that the Trump states are also, uh, I forget, oh, it was Max Boot wrote a piece and said, no surprise that Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and Louisiana are the lowest vaccination states. They're Trump states. And I'm like, well, they're also poor. They're so poor. Those states are all in the bottom five. And I can say this, you know, the unofficial motto of West Virginia is thank God for Mississippi. The uh, These are the poorest states with the least educational attainment 
in the United States. I'm not saying there's not a political overlay here, but do you see in the data that you uh, spelunk around in, there's got to be a high correlation between uh, vaccine hesitancy, resistance, uh, slash resistance, and uh, income and education, right? Absolutely. And um, we know that African Americans who are the most loyal Democratic bloc in the electorate yeah. uh, have, once you control for party, black black Democrats are far less likely to have gotten a vaccine than white Democrats. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are going on there, right? Yes, partisanship definitely plays a big level, but so does race, so does education. Uh, income and education are sort of correlated in yeah, some yeah, yeah. sort of sense. But, you know, there's a reason why the states you listed, we didn't, you didn't list Wyoming. Wyoming in, is the, is the, is the partisan, is the, is the best argument for how partisanship or the, the best demonstration of how partisanship is affecting vaccination is that Wyoming, which is a, a, a middle of the middle kind of state on income and education, uh, is a bottom tier on vaccination. So that is, that is for sure. Right. Um, but it's definitely the case that, um, you know, when you look at, sort of the different things, you know, Utah, for example, is actually a mid-tier state, right? Very Republican state, but very well-educated. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, also it's a very young state, which actually goes sort of counter. So, you know, we we, 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 we see these different Harry, things. They are Harry, what do you think the Mormons are doing when they're not getting drunk? They don't have hangovers, so they're just having more kids. They're, 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 they're making up for the, with their extra time. But, I, I, you know, I would just generally say that there's a lot of different intersecting things. Politics absolutely plays a role. It's unfortunate that politics plays a role. You know, it, we wonder why Canada and uh, the UK have passed us in terms of vaccinations. And if you yeah. were to look and you were to essentially to correlate the 2019 uh, Canadian, um, you know, election vote. Premiership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, a vote by uh, province. And you were to correlate it with the vaccination rates by province, very small, very small, yeah. especially compared to the states. So, look, it's definitely something that's going on, but it is not the whole story. So sure. what so what percentage of Americans have at least one dose of the vaccine now, roughly? Uh, if we're talking about adults, it's right around 68, 69 percent. You know, we speak about partially vaccinated uh, kids and stuff like that. But obviously we haven't had opened it up to those under the age of 12. Um, and the other thing I'll note, you know, if we're looking just two very quick points, uh, in terms of ways that we put up the vaccination rates, one is there are a lot of children 12 to 17 who have not gotten a vaccine dose whose parents have. Um, and there are about 10% of the adult population that is vaccine hesitant, not resistant. That is, they say, I'll wait and see on getting the vaccine. Those, are, I think, are the two groups, as I sort of look at the numbers, where I think there's the best chance to make some headway uh, instead of being like, look, there are going to be some folks who are never going to get this vaccine, no matter what we say. So um, those two groups are, say that again, who are the two groups that you think where you can, the most the headway two, could be made? The two groups, I think, are the vaccine um, hesitant group among adults. That is, those who haven't gotten the vaccine but say that, you know, I'm open to getting it. I just need to be convinced a little bit more. They're about 10% of the adult population. And then there is this slew. If you look at children, right, I believe it's only about 40% of 
children age uh, 12 to 17 have gotten at least one dose at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's despite the fact that around 68% of adults have gotten at least one vaccine dose at this point. Well, I, but I want adults, and this is just me, I want adults to do better at getting vaccinated so kids don't have to get vaccinated, right? If a, it, I look, I don't want for, I don't want it to be necessary for, uh, I am happily a, a Pfizer recipient. Uh, I had two days of basically, I had, I had had coronavirus uh, in, in, I had had the actual coronavirus. It was a mild case, but I, I had gotten it. Uh, and having the vaccine was just two days of like the same symptoms that my brain, uh, it was like, it was like I had been eating magic mushrooms. I could not think uh, clearly, could not function uh, normally. Uh, and I had uh, uh, some chills. It was two days, whatever. I don't want all the fourth graders in America to have to get uh, vaxxed to go back to school. I don't want them to have to do that. And I kind of feel like if just enough adults, if we could just get to, I don't know what the magic number is, but if we can get to like 85%, if we can just get there, then we can leave the kids out of it. Is that is that wishful thinking on my well, part? I, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, but what I whoa, will whoa, whoa, say- Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You're not an epidemiologist? I, this interview right. is over. What I will say is a few fold. One, I'll say I actually had very few side effects uh, from my uh, vaccine dose and my uh, antibody count quite high, thank you to my blood test, as well as my <laughs> cholesterol, uh, very high. So it was plus and minuses. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, what we look, the people who are most vulnerable to this are adults, especially older adults. We know that. Um, And obviously, if we were to pick and choose, we would want older adults, especially. And they have, you know, disproportionately older adults have been vaccinated versus younger adults. um, Does the part does does the partisan uh, or income slash education split? disappear or not completely disappear, but does it lessen with age? Yes. I will say that the partisan split does lessen with age uh, somewhat, if only because if you have, you know, 80%, 85% fully vaxxed when you get above 60, you know, 60 to 60 to 65, uh, 65 plus um, partially vaxxed and fully vaxxed is around 80. But the point is that once you get up there, yes, obviously it has to shrink at least a little bit because more Republicans are. Uh, getting vaccinated. What, what are the demographic characteristics of the most hardcore anti-vaccine people? Um, I would say that they are Republican, that they are mm-hmm. younger, um, that they are lacking a college education. Um, those tend to be the most hardcore. You know, you go rural, essentially you pick out all the different things and you basically right. find, and, and, and that's where you sort of are. Um, and it just looks like all Trump hats, I see. Yes, yes. It's you, not, you have... I mean, you the, have they're not all Trump hats. I mean, look, there are, look, even among Democrats, right, uh, there's still about a sixth of Dem- six, one sixth of Democrats who have not been vaccinated among the adult population. And, and that's and that's going to be uh, predominantly uh, African-American, Hispanic uh, folks. Uh, yeah. I mean, African-Americans particularly are a lower share um, than you would expect based upon the fact that Democrats have so highly gotten vaccinated that uh, they okay. are a low, they are a lower share for sure. Um, just, uh, uh, there's not data that will support this, uh, but 
what's your hunch? You know the electorate very, very well. You know the American electorate as well as anybody. Um, what is your hunch that's going to happen? Are we going to st- are, are we stalled here? Are we going to break through again and and move move the ball a little further down the field? Uh, what is your hunch about what the next six months or a year look like in terms of people getting vaccinated? I think we've hit a wall to some degree. I think that there are a few things that we can do. Um, authorization, full authorization um, from the FDA, I think would be tremendous. People link that as a reason why they haven't gotten the vaccine. And we know these vaccines are safe. We know that they are, you know. Um, we know that these vaccines have been these vaccines have been more studied, more than scrutinized than than, than the stuff that people use all the time. Exactly. We know this. We know that they're safe. And, you know, you mentioned side effects and, you know, some people get some side effects, but I would much rather have two days of side effects than having to end up in the hospital because. Of- well, I would I would pay two days of side effects to go on an airplane to take a trip with my kids, to do the stuff that I want to do, to not have to wear a mask when I go through my life. How nice it is to have my big fat face uh, sticking out for the whole world to see again. Uh, And when I can go into a store, I watch people walking around DC and do you hate the heat as much as I do? Do you, do you despise despise the heat? It's so disgusting. And New York, uh, there's a, a, uh, there's a, a U2 lyric in the song New York that is hotter than a hairdryer in your face. Uh, And that is what New York is like in the summer. And it smells like uh, urine. And I watch people in DC where it's disgustingly hot and they're walking around the masks on. I'm like, yo, bro, get the vax. Why are you, why are you, why are you living this life? And I know that there can be exceptions, but it seems like the best, and maybe this is because I am more, uh, I am more Antony than Brutus, but the 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 best argument to me is life's nicer when you get vaccinated, right? Life's easier. It's more pleasant. You can do more stuff and you can do it more comfortably. Well, I think that's one of the things that's going to be coming up in the debates that we're going to have is, are there going to be things that are cut off to those who are not vaccinated? We've seen that in France. Um, and we saw that the vaccine um, acceptance rate, people getting the vaccines went up after that was announced by Macron that there was going to be some restrictions on those who were unvaccinated. So I think that there are going to be some serious public policy questions about what are what type of policies, if any, are going to be instituted. So I think that they're basically two large questions, right? One, maybe a few large questions. I say two, and then I'm going to list. You know, one <laughs> as, you know, if cases get significantly worse, Will there be a push? Oh, wait a minute. I can't hang out. There can't be a free rider issue where I can't just lay back and hope that everyone else will take care of my problem. Two, um, there are certainly some, again, these vaccines have been studied, studied, studied. We know that they're safe, but yet people still say that, you know, um, they still have some, you know, basically they're worried about them. There's Mm -hmm. something holding them back. Uh, Whether or not full approval, um, from the FDA will uh, will jump will jumpstart the rate and three is whether or not the government is going to try and make life more difficult for those who don't get vaccinated whether that jump rates uh, and the other thing I'll note is I guess a corollary is just to even having it in the doctor's office I think will help um, because we know from the polling that unvaccinated folks say the person that they trust most 
about the vaccine is their own doctor. And so if you can get a doctor to essentially be like, look, this thing is good for you, you should take it and get them, get them right on the spot. I think that that, could, that that will at least help at the margins. Well, I, the, the interesting struggle is going to be for private entities, uh, concert venues, airlines, et cetera, et cetera, that they are facing the split that you see in your data uh, with their own customer base. So they got 60% of the people that are like, yeah, I'm glad I'm vaccinated. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm vaxxed and ready to party. Uh, and they don't want unvaccinated people on the plane or sitting next to them in the stadium or whatever. They're, that's, they don't want to do that. Like I have a, I know I noted the increase of vaccine or the 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 little outbreak of coronavirus among the uh, refugee Texas Democrats, and I'm like, people are lying about being vaccinated. People, I know that people with a vaccine can very 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 seldom, but it is possible that you can get coronavirus. You will probably get a milder case, but I think people are lying about their vaccines. You think people are lying about vaccinations? Oh, I think there's certainly some percentage of the population that's lying. Um, and we know we've, we've seen stories about that. My mother called me up. We know that there are people who are lying, uh, who those people are. We have no idea who they necessarily are. The other thing I will note is that, um, the government has not done a great job of tracking breakthrough cases. They've mm-hmm. done a very good job of tracking breakthrough hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. And so what the vaccines are really for is to keep you from getting really sick. They are yeah. to keep you out of the hospital. Look, we all get colds. That's a normal part of life. Uh, if the vaccine keeps you keeps turns this from being something horrific and is something that's just a normal cold. That's a success. And so uh, I have one, no doubt that the vaccines really work very, very well at severe illness. They do work well at uh, any type of illness, but really it's a severe illness that matters. Um, and uh, three, I don't know what percentage are um, not telling the truth, but there's certainly some out there. We, we know that from reporting. Uh, all right, let's uh, move on to a quick political lightning round before we talk about soda pop. Uh, how likely are Republicans to take the House, and how likely are the Republicans to take the Senate next year? In your thinking, uh, based upon history in the House, I would say it's certainly north of eighty uh, yep. percent. As we get closer, we'll see a little bit more. Senate's interesting. I do think the GOP is favored, but I wouldn't put it anywhere north of sixty percent at this particular point, just because I got to see who the candidates are in each particular race and sort of see how it unfolds. Yeah. As I, as I uh, lay out the spread on the Senate, you can see how you could have the right now, very reasonably based on how these primaries go. There's a difference of three, four, five potential, (laughs) potential seats with how this goes. Like do the Republicans have a candidate in Arizona? Oh no. Well then, don't worry. Don't worry about that. If they're if they're running some, you know, Lulu bird against Mark Kelly, then we can take that one off. Same in Ohio, same in Pennsylvania. So uh, this is going to be something. All right. So what uh, in that same vein? What percentage of Republicans do you think and see the poll polling is really hard on this because it's subject the, the these are self-assessed uh, things among voters. It's like asking somebody if they're a likely voter. Uh, depends on how they feel that day. 
we see a lot of polling around how Trumpy is the Republican Party, right? There's a lot of, you know, do you support uh, Donald Trump more than the Republican Party? Uh, would you uh, encourage Trump to run again and all that stuff? What is your basic assessment for how Trumpy the Republican Party is? It's tough because, as you said, it really depends on the definition. I, I, I do think that the fact that he's getting 50 to 60 percent of the primary vote um, against other folks, I think that's probably a pretty good baseline. How solid that is is a whole other question. It's certainly the case that it is weaker than it was a year ago at this point when it was closer to 80 percent. But I do think looking forward to 2024, if he ran, he would be considered the favorite. But I would not say that he would. It would be unstoppable, insurmountable. Okay. All right. Now on to the important things. What kind? Uh, the uh, listeners should know that once uh, Harry paid off a bet to me uh, with a case of my. At the time, I was going through a real thing for uh, Diet Cheerwine, a North Carolina uh, based soft drink, which I th- I felt was the king of diet sodas. Um, I now, and I know this is very basic of me, but the new Dr. Pepper zero is quite, quite good. Uh, where are you at on diet beverages now? Uh, I mean, I'm still a diet A and W cream soda guy. Um, it's so good, but uh, it's got no caffeine, my friend. I know that is a problem. Well, you know, a lot of the sodas are losing caffeine, you know, it, it, that used to have a caffeine in it and it lost it. Um, is that right? Yes. Um, huh. I thought I was under the belief that Bark's root beer does. It does, but the diet doesn't. Uh, I like it. I look, I love a diet Dr. Pepper. There's no, I'll never not like a diet Dr. Pepper. Um, and the new I, stuff is good. The new stuff is good. Uh, I like, you know, it really also depends on what time of the day it is because I'm not going to drink caffeine at night, but I like a, you know, I, I like a Coke zero, you know, Coke I Zero's still great. do. Um, sure, sure. I, I, but I will say what I um, had. So I went. I was in D.C. the other other day, and mm-hmm. I went to Cava in Union Station. And they For have people who do not live in the Acela corridor. Cava yes. is a what would we call it? A, a fast casual, uh, a a high, a high end fast food uh, restaurant that serves the food of the Levant uh, of mm-hmm. uh, the of the Middle Eastern Mediterranean. Yes, and. They are one of these fancy, you know, uh, organic type. I don't know mm-hmm. if they're actually organic, but, you know, that's a word I would associate with them. And essentially, they had a soda machine there for a brand called Main Root. Main Root's very good. And they had a Diet Cola in that, Mexican Diet Cola. And I was in love with this thing, so much so that when I came back to New York, I sought out a cava so I could get the main route again. It's very good. And what was so upsetting, so upsetting, was that the syrup to seltzer ratio was way oh, off no. in the fountain. It was way too much seltzer, so you couldn't even uh-huh. water it down, right? And it was, and I told the person who worked there, and they were unfortunately of no help. Um, there, but there not is, that they, they could think- do anything. Yeah. Not that they could do anything, but but what I think few I had I had I'm a huge uh, main route is very good. Boylan's is also very good. Sometimes you I know the person Boylan's. who owns Boylan's actually, and sometimes you'll see a Boylan's fountain. This is this is uh, excellent. But the experience of having 
a fountain drink. This is like when you see one of the Coca-Cola uh, mix-your-own. I love the Coca-Cola mix-your-own. And when I do those, that is for me a, a peach uh, diet mellow yellow or mellow yellow zero. Peach in that is just dynamite. But to go to, you think you're going to be at the Oasis, you have a high-end fountain ready to pour with nice shaped ice. Everything's going to be great. And then you hit the thing and it just, it's just water. It's just water. It's very depressing. And they never care, Harry. It, that wasn't just that one guy. I can tell you, they never, if you point it, so I don't even point it out anymore. It's just, it's just sad. It's just, it was so upsetting and I was so looking forward to it. And it was just like, and then you haven't like, oh, it's seltzer. And I don't, unlike you, I don't like seltzer. You don't do any of the sparkling? No. Huh. Well, let me tell you, my friend, Wegmans pineapple. Just open, open the doors of perception. Just think about it. Um, Harry, I'm so grateful that you made time for us. You really are the best. Uh, and I would encourage everybody to never be on Twitter, but obviously, uh, if, if you've made, if you've made a series of bad choices and found yourself on Twitter, uh, forecaster Enton is a must follow, uh, and Harry's stuff is just great. So thank you for being with us, my friend. Shalom, my friend. Be well.